0: Good having you all here this morning. Uh, I know I saw a few new faces, so welcome to Cornerstone. We're glad you're able to worship with us this morning. Um, We're going to be in 2 Corinthians again. Actually, this is our last week in 2 Corinthians. You're supposed to go... Oh, see, okay, that's better. Good, good, all right. <laughs> now, we're going to be finishing up the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been studying it for a while. If you need a Bible today and you don't have a Bible, if you just raise your hand, there's going to be people coming down the aisles. They'd be happy to put a Bible in your hand. All you have to do is raise it. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 13 today. So if you, uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up uh, there, and that's, that's where we're going we're gonna to be. Now, one of the things that we've been doing and going through the book of 2 Corinthians is we've been realizing, or at least I hope you've been able to realize, is that this book is, is or this particular letter that Paul wrote is one that I think is, is crucial for the church in the United States today. I think it's crucial for Cornerstone. Let me just say it that way. Because I really do believe many of the issues that the Corinthians were facing, we face, and so we've been walking them through. And one of the issues that we've come to over the last few weeks is this idea of conflict. Now, all throughout the book of, of, of 2 Corinthians, you have to understand this. It is a letter of conflict. It is Paul, in a, in a very cool way, giving us a master's class on how to handle conflict. And, and we know that from, from almost a year before that, at least there had been a conflict going on with the church, and you just see Paul trying to sort his own way through it, not without mistakes, not without even having to deal with own, his own sin in his life and the struggles that he had. But what we have here is really him coming to a point where, and I, and I would just say this for all of us. Conflict is just unavoidable. That's one of the big things I hope you've learned. No one can escape it. All of us are in it all the time in different ways, in different facets. And there's ways in which sometimes God calls us to avoid that conflict, to honor Jesus. And there's other times he asks us to step in, to seek that conflict. But the main thing is, is that because we live in a fallen world, Conflict is absolutely unavoidable. And I'll say what I said again last week. If you are somebody that thinks you can avoid conflict and you can manipulate and cajole and and connive and get to the point where you think there isn't conflict, you are lying to yourself because all you're doing is sweeping aside something that's just going to continue to grow and to fester. And so this is what Paul's doing in that particular church. Now, the other thing we learned is that good conflict resolution demands that we know the problem Now, the problem we know from this particular context was these people called the super apostles. They'd come in. They'd stirred up all kinds of dissension within the ranks. We're even going to learn today that they'd kind of thrown a coup. They were trying to take things over, and Paul has to speak into that in this particular conflict. But I think in our own kind of conflict, one of the difficult things is we tend to fight the the outside problems, the symptoms not ever realizing that outside of those symptoms is the real problem, the, time, the thing that takes time and energy and effort and prayer to be able to get to. And so we, we talked about that particular idea of the problem. The thing that we talked about, though, the, the, this, this last particular week, <clears throat> or the two weeks ago, was this idea of what, what is conflict supposed to be? And conflict always has a trajectory, which must be towards this thing called restoration. If you remember right, the way we defined restoration was, is that restoration is, is becoming or help others to become the people that God intended them to be. So that the aim that we have in conflict is not that I win and you lose, or even like I'm going to talk about here in just a second, compromise for believers is unheard of. We don't compromise because what compromise says is, and you'll see this in like the win-win principle. I get a little of what I want. You get a little of you want. But Paul is writing a letter where he's saying it's not about us. It's about King Jesus. We need to ask the question, what does he want? That's not compromise. That is going to be something completely different, which I think has way more to do with this idea of what we're aiming for, restoration. Now, that also means it doesn't mean we're going to actually hit it. But I think the other thing that we talked about big time last week was is that conflict comes from a place of weakness. Our tendency is to try to rally the troops, get as many people on our side, come up with all the great arguments that we can. Uh, it, it's this, this type of thing where I'm going to come into this argument as strong as I possibly can, but yet Paul says that the way that he worked through this difficulty was is he learned to be in submission to God. He learned to bend the knee and trust, realizing that he comes to it now from a position of weakness and dependence upon God. Now, the thing that I think was key for me, and let me just kind of throw some of these things out. This is what my wife and I learned over the last week, and I'll, I'll just kind of throw them at you. One is, a position of weakness has this capacity to restrain anger and frustration. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, you know this, right? In conflict, the moment that anybody gets angry, it's going wrong fast, there is no possible way, this thing, when there's midst of frustration or anger. And so my wife and I, as we were talking this particular week, she just said, you know, I think we just have to agree with one another. If either one of us are angry or frustrated, we shouldn't enter into conflict. Let me just say this. I don't think anybody should enter into conflict when they're angered or frustrated. I think the other thing that's really crucial when we talk about a position of weakness is is that we listen oftentimes instead of trying only to, we listen instead of trying to only prove uh, uh, your point. Um, I don't know how many of you are this way, but somebody starts talking, and I could care less what they're saying because I've got five things that I need to batter them with. And so in this, it's just, I think the key is, here's, here's one of the classic things of conflict that you might consider in your own conflict. You might be wrong. Yeah. Interesting word, isn't it? (laughs) So often we come into conflict. Here's one of the things a position of weakness says. I could actually be wrong. Another thing is this idea of confessing your faults instead of blame shifting. Have you ever noticed like in your own life or or not, not, not you, but you know, like other people here, we'll just go at it from that standpoint, you know, other people The way that sometimes when they enter conflict, they don't want to be the first one to confess faults because if I confess faults, I lose, and I don't want to lose because they need to understand how bad they've hurt me. I mean, again, not you, like other people. You know what I'm talking about? But in this, I really do think a position of weakness just says we confess our faults right off the bat. We ask forgiveness for our sin. Oftentimes, we're fearful of asking for forgiveness because if I ask for forgiveness and you don't ask for forgiveness, that now puts me in a position of weakness to which God says, Great, be in a position of weakness. Another one that I was thinking about is is just the idea of take action promptly. We need to take it, like in conflict. But I also have noticed all throughout this book have you noticed how patient Paul was? He wasn't in a hurry. Uh, There's a group of people, I I learned from a guy one time, you know, never let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, that's true. It's not supposed to go down on your anger. But have you ever noticed that people fight into the middle of the night until they solve their problem, and that's sometimes the stupidest thing to do? Sometimes you have to actually take a break. Let the things settle, calm down, figure out what's going on. In other words, we need to pray and wrestle for a little while instead of just trying to resolve some kind of a conflict. Another thing that I was just thinking about off this it's only after that should you address the issues in your brother or sister's life. Uh, my wife and I were laughing about this particular one. Um, so often in our own interactions, as we've wrestled through conflict, it's so easy to see the other person's faults, isn't it? Gosh, it's so easy. I mean, I, I told her that even as we, her and I were talking, I said, gosh, right now I could come up with so many things that are your fault. And she looks at me and she goes, you don't think I don't have a list? And I was like, we need to have some more conflict, you know, but, but it's just this reality and conflict. It's not until we have addressed issues in our life, come to that position of complete dependence upon God, that then now we've kind of removed that plank from our eye before we address the speck in another's eye just from a biblical standpoint. The other thing is, and this is where I think is crucial, we aim for agreement through restoration, choosing to aim for what God has called us to be and created us to be, not compromise. Now let me just say this again, I get that in this world that we live in at work and in all these different places with unbelievers, because that's really where I'm going to be speaking today is to believers compromise often has within it this idea of I will give you something so that you win and you give me something so that I win. And in the middle of that, oftentimes, we don't ever ask the question, how does Jesus win in this? That's really what we're after. It's not about you or me winning. It's about Jesus being the victor. Him being put on display is kind of what we're we're getting at. Which brings us kind of this verse that kind of has sat out there that everybody wondered when I was gonna bring it in there. But I think it's just really what we're shooting for is possible so far as it depends on you. And I love this. Live peaceably with all. Do the best you can to be able to create not false peace, but true peace in how you do things. So we've looked at those things. But here's my big question for today I'm going to throw out there. What happens if restoration is not possible, at least at this time? Right? We've all been in it before, haven't we? I've been in it in in, uh, churches that I've been involved in. I've been in it with family members. Sometimes we just come to a point where it's absolutely impossible to be able to restore. And so this is the question that we're going to try to answer today. How does Paul deal with this particular reality so that we can begin to kind of press forward? Because I don't think we're supposed to stay in a perpetual state of conflict all the time, which is point five, kind of the five ideas of conflict. Let me just lay those out, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at the text today. We must always bring conflict to a fork in the road to avoid indefinite conflict. There always has to be a point. I don't believe God has taught us to live in indefinite conflict. There's a way in which the Bible gives us to be able to walk that through. So look down in your Bibles and we'll go there. We're gonna actually start off, I told you to turn to 2 Corinthians 13, but here's what I'd like you to do first. I'd like you to, if you got your Bibles, turn them to number 16 and, and I'll kind of walk us into that to kind of help us understand Now, the issue for Paul, again, the problem was these particular guys that had come in, these super apostles, and they were trying to throw over a kind of a a coup or a rebellion of sorts against him. Now, one of the things that you're going to have to see in this and how Paul's going to bring this thing to a fork in a road is that it's a model that's come from from all throughout the Old Testament and it's landing into it. In other words, Paul's not the first to realize we have to bring things to a fork in a road. God's people have been doing this for a very long time. But he knew, and here's the crucial aspect to it when we think about conflict. We enter into conflict for, with others is because when we don't move towards restoration, when we don't move towards being the people God intended us to be, is that the outcome of the end of not being the people God intended us to be is always awful. It's always awful. Now, in this particular context, what I want to look at in, 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 in number 16, because I think this is a text that will kind of help us wrap our minds around why Paul was so adamant on bringing this thing to a, to a, to a conflict, to a to a, a point of a, a fork in the road, was that literally to rebel against a leader, to throw this particular coup, meant that God was going to bring now down upon them justice. And Paul is looking at them saying, don't do it. Moses is gonna look at Korah and Dathan and Abiram and say, don't do it. But here comes this guy named Korah. Korah decides that one of the things that he can do is that he's gonna grab some of these other Levites. There's gonna be 250 well-known leaders that are gonna be part of this group. They're gonna raise up against him and really what they're gonna seek to do is they're gonna try to grab the priesthood. Now, when we get to verse three, he says this, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, who made you in charge? Now, if anybody's ever read Moses before, talk about a reluctant leader. Moses is constantly saying, I don't want to lead. I don't want to lead. I don't want to lead. And finally, he gets the point that, no, Moses, that you're going to lead. And then finally, he kind of takes the reins, and he starts to lead the people. And up comes this guy named Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And they say, who put you in charge? And he's like, listen, I don't want to be in charge. But look at verse 4. Watch this weakness. When Moses heard it, look at this, he fell on his face. What are you doing? Don't do this. And he said to Korah and all his company in the morning, and here's the big statement, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Now, Moses understood something here. He's like, what are you doing he fell on his face. I don't think he fell on his face out of fear of them. I think he fell on his face because every time anybody stood up in rebellion, he knew it was not gonna go well. And he falls before God in that particular moment. He says, look, we will. We'll, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna decide who God is with. He'll show who he is is tomorrow. And I really do think he was creating a fork in the road moment where he's saying to these guys, we're gonna have to sit down together, but I promise you at the end of the day, God will show us who is his and who's not. I think it was also a way of, of kind of warning them, you do not want to do this. But we know that the next morning, they woke up, Korah, Dathan, and Byram, their entire families, as well as 250 of these these leaders within the Levites. They were carrying those Levites were these censers that were full of incense that, that priests would carry when they would enter into the worship of God. And it, the way that you have to picture it is it's almost like a Western In other words, on one side of it is that, and then on the other side of it, you find Moses and Aaron and priests full with their censers of incense, and the only thing that's missing is a soundtrack that goes, ooh, 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 bong, bong, bong. But again, they had no clue what they were doing. In some ways, I can't begin to grasp it, but just if you could imagine for just a second in your own head... Suddenly, the glory of God appears. You know, at that point that the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron and the other people to back up. Now, from what we understand, it was like a wave that just kept going like this as they're backing up away from these people, having no clue what's fully about ready to happen. Moses then prophesies over them that this says to them basically, the earth is about ready to have a feast. And in verse 31, As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, and just imagine this for a second, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with all their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their gods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out of the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense Whoa. now if this is kind of the thing that's in the back of Paul's mind he's saying to them you don't want to do this you don't wanna rise up against the authority that God's put into our lives, whether I'm talking kings or presidents or leaders over us. You don't wanna rise up against your parents. You don't wanna rise up against bosses and employers. You don't wanna rise up in this kind of way. And especially in this context, Paul's saying, leaders within the religious context of the people of Israel and even within the church, be so careful the way that you rise up. You don't wanna do that. I think this was what's in the back of Paul's mind. I'm not saying that he's thinking that some Somehow the earth is going to come swallow up the people of Corinth and fire is going to come down of heaven. But Paul knew in the back of his head that this conflict was so important, and he's telling these people, be so careful what you're doing. Repent before I come back to deal with this. You don't want to mess with it. Let me just talk to some of you in here that that are younger, that have parents that you're still at home with. There's a reason that Paul in Ephesians 6 says that obeying our parents actually is a promise that the Bible talks about, that it may go well with you all your days. He's saying in there, don't rise up against your parents. Why? Well, the Bible is full of kids that rose up against their parents, and God, it's way bigger than just you've made the household conflicted. It is that you don't play with stuff like that. You don't toy with authority over you. It was what caused me to shake so much when we have presidents that we like or we don't like and and sometimes these presidents do things we don't like but then I hear Christians talking so poorly of the leaders that God has allowed to put into place whether they're Democrat or Republican and you don't mess with authority over you. Paul's saying be careful. Or Moses is. But Paul's thinking this in the back of his head. Paul knew the consequences of being rebellious. And I think when we talk about conflict, we've always got to think, what are the consequences down the road? If I don't deal with this conflict right now, what are the consequences of not dealing with this? Why do I need to do this so badly? And in Paul's mind, he knew when it comes to rebellion against leaders, he knew this had to be dealt with because God is deadly serious about how it is that we have authority in our lives and the audacity of people to stand up to that authority that he's put in place for our own good. I think this is a huge principle. So so how does Paul do it? Well, by the time we come to 2 Corinthians 13, we know that he's already visited the city twice. We see it in there. This is the third time I'm coming to you. He came to plant the church in Acts 18. He had the painful visit in 2 Corinthians 2. But what's important here is is that we see Paul understanding that there had been a rejection, but he's going to bring this thing to a fork in the road. In other words, he was going to say, when I come, almost like Moses did, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. His next visit, he's saying there's going to be a fork in the road. Look what he says in there, right after he says, the third time I'm coming to you. Here's, here's, Here's a key word for us to understand where he's going. Every charge, he says... Must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, why would he say that? I'm coming to you, and now every charge needs to be brought out by these two or three witnesses? What in the world? He's laying out this concept within the church, and I, I just want us to, to grasp this for a little bit because I feel like it's a concept, a biblical truth, a principle that has gone by the wayside because we don't know what to do with it. It's called church discipline. We don't want to do it because it seems so harsh. We don't want to do it because somewhere on the back of our heads, we, we think different things about it and we wrestle through it. We, we, we think that who am I to ever judge somebody else? But yet the Bible throughout it calls us in different ways under complete submission and in weakness to bring about that judgment. It points all the way back to Deuteronomy 19 in which you see this principle in which it began in which God had a way in which conflict when it came to a point and we didn't know what to do with it there was going to be evidence that would tell us how to resolve the conflict how to bring the conflict to resolution. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 18 when when he laid out the reality of how do we deal with conflict between me and my brother. He said in there first, you go to your brother, hopefully you win him over. If you don't win him over, then you go grab what? Two or three others. It's what Paul is talking about here. He's he's laying out this principle that I am going to come to town, and when I come to town, if things aren't dealt with, we're going to start a process to which God has called us to, which I've been doing now for years with you as I've been confronting you and calling you and reaching out to you. He says it's got to come to an end. we got to create a fork in the road. I think in our personal lives, we're so afraid to create forks in the road because it forces us to make decisions. But Paul says, I'm gonna force you to make a decision. I'm gonna force you to either in this fork in the road, understand this, you're gonna go the way the rebellious, but at the other end of this rebellion is going to be a cliff that you're gonna fall off of and you're gonna run into the hands of the living God and you don't wanna do that. Or we're going to have repentance and God is going to do a powerful work amongst us in which we're going to restore and be the people God's called us to be. But his point is, I am not going to allow this not to be addressed. Now don't get me wrong, it's supposed to take place over time. It's not something that's supposed to be hasty. Sometimes... I've seen how churches and probably even I and churches I've been involved we're, were too quick to roll things out. There really hasn't been good, healthy conflict. And therefore, then whenever we get to this point now where we have to put somebody under this thing called church discipline that we often talk about, it just is messy and ugly and it doesn't look right. But Paul says, I've done everything. I've walked through this process. In fact, verse 2, look what he says. I warned those who sinned before and all others. In other words, I've been actually church discipline for a while. I've been been trying to get you to repent. I've been reaching out to you. And now he says, I'll warn them now while I'm absent. I'm going to do it again as I did when present on my second visit. And here's his big thing, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is in me. He's laying out this mandate that he's put in front of them. His point was, when I arrive, we're going to carry this out. I'm going to get the witnesses. We're not going to stay in this perpetual state of conflict anymore. It seems like a harsh declaration, but I think what he's doing is is he's about ready to model because we're gonna see this now starting in the rest of the way through 2 Corinthians 2 is that when Jesus came the first time, he came as the humble servant. Nobody would have been able to identify him as the great king that he was, only those that were revealed to him. But after the resurrection of Jesus, I promise you, Paul is saying in these next few verses, when he comes back, he's not coming back as the humble servant anymore. He's coming back. As the king to judge. And he says, I came to you first as humble, but if need be, I'll come back and I will judge. Now, this stuff is crazy, it's almost ironic. They wanted Paul to be this this certain type of leader. They wanted this guy to be healthy and wealthy. They wanted him to look good. They they said, this is the way that we want you to look. And so therefore, because you don't look this way, you're not powerful. There's something wrong with you. They threw out in front of him, this is what it means to be an authentic leader. And the thing they're about ready to realize is they're about to get way more than they bargained for. Because, in some ways, and this is the only way that I can think about it, and I've used this before, I don't know how many of you grew up in a home where your mom says, wait till dad gets home. Now, some of you I get maybe didn't have a dad present in the home, so let me just try to explain it to you. What that word meant was, oh no. Paul's saying, I've given you this one side of me, but understand something's coming different. Now watch what he does in this next section. He talks about Christ here now. He said, he's not weak in dealing with you. And I think, again, he's referencing back to how Christ was when he was there, but is powerful among you. For he was, look at this, crucified in weakness. What you saw is this one that was crucified in weakness, but because of the resurrection now, he lives by the power of God. He's talking about this whole concept of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He may have looked like somehow that he was weak when he hung on the cross, when he was spat at, when he walked down the streets people began to mock him he looked so frail in taking on human flesh in so many different ways but we know this those of you in here that are followers of Jesus is that when he died and he proclaimed his last three days later he rose no longer as the humble servant he rose declaratively in front of all that he is king of kings and lord of lords he says that's what I'm walking here Now the question that I think he's wrestling through is which does it take more power? Does it take more power to be weak in front of you? Or does it take more power to come in and judge you? The other the only answer to that question is both. It takes a ton of power to restrain, to sit there and to be honest of your weakness. But this is crucial to where he's going. He says in this next section in 4b, for we also are weak in him. That's that's who we are. We're, We're people that now come in humility and grace and dignity, understanding our dependence upon him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And it's almost like you should add this, if need be. Which do you want? How do you want me to come to you? he's putting things do you see this he's putting people out of fork in the road now in there i think he's telling us a little bit of an idea again of where he's going Earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, the church had brought discipline to bear. They had take a person and they followed Matthew 18. In fact, if you want to understand 1 and 2 Corinthians, Matthew is so much of a, a gospel that seems to intertwine itself with the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. But in Matthew 18, they had walked through the process. They would called their brother to repentance. And then and finally in 1 Corinthians 5, we know this, that they turned this one over to Satan. Now just think about that. They came to this point where Paul says, you're going to take this individual and you're going to turn them over to the most powerfully created being ever. But the point was you're doing it so that they might now come to repentance. They might come to restoration. Restoration. You turn them over you let them go get their sin you it is the way within the church that god has given us that when we come to these particular moments in conflict in a gracious way when we don't know what to do there's a process in which we can create that final fork in the road in which we no longer are pursuing restoration but at least we have what's called resolution now do we like the solution no In fact, every time that I've walked in a church and I've been a part of an elder board that has ever had to hand somebody over to Satan, I have never done it with other people without great tears in my eyes. We don't want to get there. In essence, we're saying we're turning them over in a worse way than just to have the world, the world, the earth come and swallow them up. We're turning them over, but we're turning them over with a goal, with a resolution, with a solution in mind. In one way, we're saying, "Go get your sin," but in another way, God, we're saying, "This one is in your hands. We entrust this one to you." And this is what Paul's saying: When I come here, I will do this, not because I don't love you, because all throughout chapter twelve, he just keeps calling him beloved and loved. He adores these people. He's like a dad that's crying out to his child that is going down a bad path. And the prodigal then, he looks at him and says, I don't know what else to tell you, but to just leave. Go get your sin. But with always the hope that this one will come to the end of themselves and return back, the prodigal will come home. Paul says, I'll do this. Now, let me just be honest with you about Cornerstone. We'll do this. Not because we don't love people. No, not at all. Gosh, I love this church. It's been such a joy to be a shepherd here at Cornerstone for these years that I've been here and however long God keeps me here. But I always want to be at the point where I will love you enough that I will follow the text and if ever need be, we'll put a fork in the road and we'll turn you over to Satan. we will turn you over because you can't stay in that conflict forever. It's, it's not meant to be that way. There's meant to be not maybe restoration, what God intends us to be, but resolution that even though things aren't what God intends them to be, we're going to still trust God with this particular reality. And this is what Paul's driving towards. I think you see it in First Timothy 1 where he, he takes a, a Hymenaeus and, and he takes Alexander and he turns them over to Satan. You see that also like in First Corinthians 11 where there's some people that are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and he says they're dying. In fact, that whole concept of for the destruction of the flesh in First Corinthians 5 means we're going to turn them over to their own sin in the hopes that they are miserable and terrible, that they'll finally come to repentance and they'll see things for what they are and they will return in hope to not only the church, but in a grander way to God himself. Paul says, I will come in and this is what I'll do, not because I don't love you, but because this is the only way sometimes to bring about resolution. Therefore, what that means is I feel like sometimes we have these conflicts between each other and we need to throw forks in the road at different points. Maybe not the ultimate fork in the road with people, but we force them to make decisions. What are we gonna do here? How are we gonna deal with this? Have you ever noticed those things that don't get resolved over a ton of years, how they just fester and build and grow nastier and colder and darker and more awful? And Paul's saying, the church can't do this. That's not who we are. We're patient, we stretch it out. Man, but in the end, we deal with it. Why? Why? Look at verse five. Paul says, I will come there. And though I don't have looks, I don't have eloquence, my lifestyle's maybe not of the rich and famous. I don't have the experiences you want. I don't have the success you want. But he says, I'm just gonna throw this at you before I come back. Here's his statement, verse five. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He's saying the exact same thing Moses said. We'll find out who God is with tomorrow. He says back in in verse 6, unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you find out that we have not failed the test. It's a simple question. He's just asking, is Christ even in you? Man, why in the world would you rebel against this? Why would you go down this path? Why would you ever do this if Christ is in you? Part of what he's saying there, and I think this is what's so key about it, he really believes that people can change. He believes the gospel is so powerful. It is so transformative. It comes into a life and changes them radically from the inside out. And therefore, if the person doesn't change, he's just asking the question, are you even in Christ? He says, I'm just throwing that at you before I come back. He says, I hope you'll find that we have not failed the test in verse 6. He's being very subjective here. He's just talking it through, asking this question to them. He realizes that they can blow hard all they want. They can pretend all they want. They can be deluded all they want. No one knew except probably themselves at that time where they were with this, but he was throwing it at them because he firmly believed that those that truly had Christ in them would be transformed. He had hope. See, this is one of the big things in conflict. Let me just, let me toss this at us. Every time you enter conflict, you should enter conflict with hope. Every time. I believe most times we enter conflict going, oh, I hope it turns out more well, where hope is more of a wish or a fantasy as opposed to hope that says, God, if this person really has Christ in them, I believe something powerful is gonna happen. I don't care how hurt you are. I don't care even if you come to the point where you feel like I can't even forgive. We enter into this believing that the gospel is so powerful that this person, if they have Christ in them, will be transformed. And if they don't have Christ in them, they will see their need for a savior and repent. In other words, have hope as you enter into conflict. I think that's why in verse seven, he says this, But we pray See that? I pray to God that you may not do wrong. In other words, that you might not go down the the wrong path. Not that we may appear to have met the test. In other words, it's not about me. I'm not playing a game with you. It's not like, oh, I succeeded and you failed. That's not what he's doing here. It's that you may do what's right, that you might be restored, that you might be the person that God intended. Though even he says, we may have seemed to have failed. And kind of his point in saying that is, I know if we come back and you've repented, we're gonna still look weak because we're not gonna hold your feet to the fire. If you've really repented. But he says, we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Verse nine, for we're glad when we are weak. In other words, when we don't have to come in there. But you are made strong in this. And look what he says in there. Your restoration is what we pray for. Principle in conflict. We pray that they would be the people that God intended them to be. Things don't always get done the way we want to. We need to pull things towards resolution, but we never quit praying for restoration. Paul in verse 10, he says, this is reason that I'm writing you these things that I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be, look at this, severe in my use of my authority. I don't wanna go there. I will if I have to, but I don't wanna go there. I don't wanna use my authority for anything other than for what he's given me for building up and not for tearing down, but he would. In other words, conflict does not go on Forever. He's talking about it on the micro level, but think about this on the macro level. We currently live in a terrible conflict. We've lived in it from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned all the way to now. Do you understand that one day, Jesus Christ, he will come back? He will come back not as a humble servant, but he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's not coming for any other reason than to call us home that are his, but to bring judgment upon all those who in conflict have never chosen to bend their knee to him and to become the people that God intended them to be. He will come back and judge. And in that judgment upon them, they will spend an eternity apart from him in hell forever and ever and ever. Eventually, one day, it will be resolved. And if you're somebody sitting here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, can I just say this? You don't want to run into King Jesus on that day. You don't. You don't want to. If you're somebody in this room right now that's playing games, that's hiding things and pretending like There's conflict not there. You're hiding your sin away from others. Let me just say this. That game will be exposed one day completely as you stand before him. It will either be now or later, and trust me, you don't want it to be later. For all those conflicts that we have out there as we look at one another and love one another, be gracious, be humble, be weak, But confront, create healthy conflict. Think about the outcome of people's lives. You don't want them to fall into the hands of that living God. Conflict with them now so they don't later. I think what I'm trying to say in this is coming into our 25th year. If Cornerstone is going to be the church that God wants Cornerstone to be, We have to not only believe that God is powerful and able and exceedingly wonderful beyond anything we can imagine, but we also have to understand in order for us to be the church we need to be, there has to be conflict. I don't want to come here if there's gonna be conflict. Healthy conflict. Conflict in our marriages of dealing with stuff that maybe we haven't dealt with for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Conflict in our homes as we deal with our children. Conflict at work as we deal with other believers. Conflict at, at the church. I mean, just we, we have to have conflict, not because we enjoy it, but because conflict is unavoidable. But we always believe we're entering into conflict because Jesus Christ changes lives. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ changes lives lives. As Paul wrote this letter, that's what he believed. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to believe that people can be transformed. And if not, then we'll enter down this area in which we will turn them over to Satan because I still believe Jesus transforms lives. I'd like everybody just to stand up real quick. Stand up. I'm going to bring Billy up. Last week I had you close your eyes and bow your heads, which I hadn't done for I don't know how long. But with every eye open, every head up, everybody looking around and everybody caring about your neighbor. We have got to get into relationships in which we stir one another towards love and good deeds Hebrews talks about. To stir one another actually means to provoke. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what it means. We, we need to actually be great provokers in humility and grace. You get me that. But if you call Cornerstone home over the next 25 years, my hope and my prayer is that you won't live isolated, that you won't live without people in your life, that you'll choose to put people in your life that aren't yes people, but are people that'll come in and they'll ask questions and they'll push you. They will provoke you towards love and good deeds. If you don't have a group of people that you're involved in, that you know that you're with, and and I'm just saying any group, a group that you are challenged by and wrestle with, man, you can talk. Is Chris in this service? We'll pray for him. He must not. Oh, there he is. Good, I was about to convict you. Man, he'll sit, he's right there. You can go ask him, how do I get involved with other people? He's our pastor that helps people to be able to do that. If you want to be that person that gets in and, and, and has others that dive into your life to be able to walk with you and help you, he'll be right back there. He'd love to walk with you on how to do that. But we got to come to forks in the road because there's coming a day where there's the ultimate fork in the road. Now, for those of you who are in Christ, Man, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, there's just conflict. And Cornerstone, let's do it well. Amen? All right.